morning, everyone. It is good to see you, and we thank you for being here. If you have your Bibles, Ephesians chapter 5 is we're going to be where we're going to be this morning. If you don't have a Bible, you can look in the seat beneath you or the one in front of you, reach there and get the blue Bible and turn to page 829, and you'll be exactly where you need to be. You might notice that we're just about through with Ephesians. So um, just take note of that, and um, you'll be on your way. Th- this week, I did want to say something brief and read something brief. I did take um, the liberty to write to the families of, that were affected in last Sunday's uh, tragic events, and I wrote on behalf of the congregation, and since I did that, I thought it'd be best to, to read to you what we sent to at least three different families that were affected um, by last week. Uh, on behalf of the entire congregation of West Cohasset Chapel, I'd like to extend to you our deepest sympathies on the very difficult loss of, and we'll let you fill that blank in, we are all sorry here and we are grieving with you. Our constant prayer for you has been a full measure of God's abiding comfort and help. Beyond all this, we stand with you uh, beyond the funeral events, understanding that life is still to be lived past all the distressing arrangements of the coming weeks. The following scripture and song has helped me in very difficult times, and I commend them to you for your help and solace. If we could lend a hand to you in any way, please let us know. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong and firm and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. And then a quote from a song, He Giveth More Grace by Annie Johnson Flint. He giveth more grace as our burdens grow greater. He sends more strength as our labors increase. To added afflictions, he added his mercy. To multiply trials, he multiplies peace. His love has no limits. His grace has no measure. His power, no boundary, known unto men. For out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and he giveth and giveth again. Our deepest respect and sympathy, um, the pastor and congregation of West Cohasset Chapel. So I just wanted you to know that that was out there, and um, I thought it'd be wise and good to do it. So, well, let's do this. Let's stand together and pray before we read the scripture this morning. Ask God for his help, his needed help and blessing, and then we'll move on and read the text and get on with the, get on with the morning. God and Father, we acknowledge the authority and the glory and the power of you, your Son, and the Holy Spirit. We acknowledge, Lord, in light of what we've read, in the light of who Jesus is, that um, you, God, are too kind to do anything cruel, that you are too wise to make mistakes, and at times, Father, you are too deep to explain yourself. And we thank you, Father, that we will see in Jesus Christ when we see him because of him. We will see the answer to every question that we've ever had. We will see that this life is not heaven. As good as our days are, and many of them are, and we thank you fiercely for them. This is not heaven. Your glory, God, in some ways is not fully experienced. It takes us too long to bow to you. It takes tragedy sometimes, God, to to make us call out better and 
more quickly to you. And we see the need of a Savior. And we glory in the cross this morning. We've sang it in many different ways, and we are glad of it. Jesus is who he is. He is the Lord of everything. And Jesus, we bow to your authority, and we ask for your help for the listener and for the speaker. There's not one moment, and we really mean it, that we will not need intense help from your throne. And so we pray to that end for Jesus' sake. You can be seated. Now let's look at the word of the Lord and we'll, we'll read and, and then we'll get on. Verse 25, chapter 5. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other ble- blemish, but holy and blameless in this same way husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies he who loves his wife loves himself after all no one ever hated his own body but he feeds and cares for it just as Christ does the church for we are members of his body for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Now, you don't need to know this, but I'm going to tell you this anyway, that one of the things I do every time it gets time for me to start writing out my sermons is I try to think of every song that I can think of that's close to or in some kind of proximity to the sermon. Now, that should scare you because some of the songs do not make the sermon, and they shouldn't make the sermon because they're just crazy. But there is a couple of songs that I thought, um, one is new to me and one is, is, should be kind of old to all of us, that I think that would help us and see how songwriting has moved in the past, say, two generations. This song was probably about two generations ago where the person would write that you're just too good to be true, and that's husband to wife, that I can't take my eyes off of you. You'd be like heaven to touch, and I want to hold you so much. As, as, long, as long as long at long last love has arrived, and I thank God I'm alive, you're too good to be true, can't take my eyes off of you. Well, that's a nice song, but then they get worse. This song is by Celine Dion and Luciano Pavarotti, and the song entitled is Hate You, Then I Love You, and it's supposed to be from husband to wife and wife to husband, and, and this is weird. This is how the song goes. I'd like to run away from you, but if I were to leave you, I would die. I'd like to break the chains you put around me, and yet I'll never try. No matter what you do, you drive me crazy. I'd rather be alone, but then I, I know my life would be so empty. As soon as you were gone, impossible to live with you, but I could never live without you. For whatever you do, for whatever you do, I never, never, never want to be in love with anyone but you. And then he says, or she says, you make me sad, you make me strong, you make me mad, you make me long for you, you make me long for you, you make me live, you make me die, you make me laugh, you make me cry, you make me cry for you. I hate you. <laughs> then I love you. I love you, then I hate you, and then I love you more. (laughs) 
Sounds like the friend's own house. <laughs> for, for whatever you do, I never, never, never want to be in love with anyone but you. That really sounds like the friend's own house as he saved himself from that silly remark. You treat me... <laughs> You treat me wrong, you treat me right. You let me be, you make me fight with you. I can never live without you. You make me high, you bring me down, you set me free, you hold me bound to you. I hate you, then I love you. I just like that. Then I love you, then I hate you. Then I love you more, and I love you more. For whatever you do, I never, never, never want to be in love with anyone but you. And then it gets silly. I never, 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 never want to be in love with anyone but you. Now, I think that if you're prepared to be honest, I am, and I already was, um, that, that that is a part of a picture and parcel of, of a Christian marriage. Or, and we can say it like that because this is the context of people who are dependent on Jesus Christ for everything, that we are saved sinners. And at, at times, the sinful nature just, just oozes out, and we forget about the privilege of marriage, and, and we forget about what marriage is about. And so we say silly things and we do wrong things. And so we want to have a good marriage. But since we're dependent on the Lord Jesus Christ for everything, it will not happen unless he is there. So that's why I think the New Testament reminds us about everything. There cannot be any boasting unless the boasting is centered around the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the last time we were together, we said a few things that um, we need to repeat just to help us along the way. The first is probably the most important, that if a couple, a Christian couple, fails to take God seriously in their relationships, then their relationship will be marked by instability. There'll be always a growing risk of infidelity to one another, and then disloyalty to the Lord Jesus Christ, and and that a Christian couple has to be more than a pagan couple who just attends church on Sunday because that is not a Christian couple. There is and there will always be some natural consequences to the gospel. And when the gospel is yielded to, help immediately comes. And let me just stop here for a moment. I hope you see that I'm going to be like a ping pong table going back and forth, ping pong on a ping pong table, going back and forth to a healthy Christian marriage and the gospel. Because this is where Paul takes us, and we can't go anywhere else. We don't have the liberty to go anywhere else. So when the gospel is yielded to, help comes, it educates us, it strengthens us, and it gives us laser-like clarity and stability to what a Christian couple is. And that when we took those vows, remember those vows of life and death, sickness, health, good times and bad, now those vows have meaning in light of who Jesus is and what he's done. Someone once said this, that if God sends you a cross, and speaking specifically to the Christian marriage, if God sends you a cross, take it up and follow him. Use it wisely, lest it be unprofitable. Bear it patiently, lest it be intolerable. If it be light, slide it not. If the cross be heavy, murmur not. So then we learned that from the scriptures, every part of humanity, every race, face, place, male, female, has absolute equal dignity and worth before a holy God, no matter where they're from and what nation they origin from. And then we said that equality is absolutely the responsibility and necessity of life as a man and a woman, as a husband and wife. That in the context of that, a Christian marriage, that each husband and each wife has a different responsibility and that comes out of necessity. 
It is function and it is not status. And God is the one to determine what the function would be. That's why we look to him through his word. And it was the evil one who introduces this kind of idea that he would tempt humanity to blur the lines of a distinction between a man and a woman, between even, if we would say beyond this, between a man from one nation and a man from another nation. And he was the one that told Eve that you'll be like God. And right there, he blurs the lines, the distinct lines that God made. And that's why Paul, by apostolic authority, and I hope you're getting to understand what that means, he draws our mind to creation and not to culture. He calls us back to the very beginning of when God made the world and when he made it right. It's important that you understand. So he doesn't give us cultural norms. He gives us creation norms, what God wanted this world to be like. And that equality between a man and a woman was established at creation. But when the fall came, that was perverted. And so Paul backs this up to God's intention so that everything is under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And he reminds us that equality of worth is to all, but identity of role is not to all. And the roles come from God for our help and our good. And this is so important for his glory for his glory which is the chief end of every existent person man woman marriage so in verse 22 wives are told to submit to get under the arrangement of the husband as he gets under the arrangement of god or the word of god and the wives should look to the husband verse 23 as the head but the head in the scriptures is not a tyrant wives are not to be dominated by their husbands Domination was the curse of the fall. Genesis chapter 3, verse 16. And this is God speaking to Eve about the curse of the fall. Your desire, teshukah is the Hebrew word, your desire to have control over will be for your husband and he will rule. He will have dominion, despotic, cruel, absolute power over you. In other words, the fall brought this. When a wife is doing it wrong, she will want to control everything in the life of the family. When a husband is doing it wrong, he will be like a little minor tyrant in his little 100 foot by 60 foot lot. Both are wrong. There is only one Lord, and it is not the man, and it is not the woman. Husbands and wives are to complement one another and not to be in conflict or to rival one another. And so Paul concludes by saying the headship of the husband is source, is authority under the authority of God. Listen carefully. The wife might say he is a good provider. He is a nice man. He's good with the kids. He's giving. But the question that God would ask in the context of a Christian marriage, is he a gospel man? Is he leading the family to the gospel? And if you don't understand that, then again, we're right back to the pagan marriage who uses God as a means to their own end and not letting God's glory manifest manifest itself through the marriage. That's why the last question that we ask is this. How did Christ get us to love him? And the answer was that he died for us. He died even in the midst of our unlove towards him. And so A Christian marriage is not tit for tat. If she does this, then I'll do this. And if he does that, then I'll do that. That is nowhere to be found in the scriptures. That is part of our sinful nature that wants things that way. And that is wrong. 
Now we have to go to love. And that's what husbands are to do, verse 25. And we only have two points, and one will be long, and the other one will be extremely brief. Love and leave. If you're taking notes, I'd write down the word love, and then I'd take, write down the word leave. Okay, love. Paul tells your husbands, tells the husbands, love your wife. And here's what you need to know. In the Greek language, there's about four different words for the word love. There's the word erao, that is a deep, romantic, sexual word, passions, feelings for a man and a woman. That's not the word that Paul uses. There is the word phileo, which is family love or affection. Most of you know, probably all of you know, the city of Philadelphia is a city of brotherly love, hence the word phila or phileo. Then there is storgio, which is similar to phileo, which means affection for the family. But the word that Paul uses here is not, if you would, at first glance, a romantic word. It is the word agape or agape or agape, however you want to say it, which describes always the love that Jesus had for sinful humanity. Now, there's a couple of people that will help us here understanding what this word means. First from John Stott and then from John MacArthur. Stott says this, that the word that Paul uses is totally unselfish. It seeks not its own satisfaction, nor even affection, answering affection, but strives, and this is a beautiful line, for the highest good of the one loved. The love has its standard and model as Christ for the church. It means not only a practical concern for the welfare of others, but continual readiness to subordinate one's own pleasures and advantage for the benefit of others. And then John MacArthur says this, that this type of love is not like the world's love, which is always object-oriented. Listen carefully. A person is loved because of physical attractiveness, personality, wit, prestige, or some other positive characteristics. In other words, the world loves those whom it deems worthy of love. Such love is necessarily fickle. As soon as the person loses a positive characteristic or that characteristic is no longer appealing, the love based on that characteristic then disappears. It is because so many husbands and wives have only that kind of fickle love for each other that their marriage falls apart. As soon as a partner loses his or her appeal, love is gone because the basis for the love is God. And then John says this, and it has to be read, popular entertainment goes beyond reflecting the normal realistic inner longing that every person has for relationships that are genuine and permanent. The fantasy of the perfect woman and the perfect man, the perfect romantic relationships become more and more elusive as the fantasy satisfactions of immorality are chosen over the real satisfactions that come only from God's standard of purity and selfishness. The beautiful face, the athletic body, the winsome personality, and other superficial attractions cannot hold two people together when their first priority, priority in life is to serve and please themselves. The lie that no face is ever beautiful enough no body ever sensual enough, nor war, no wardrobe ever glamorous enough, no physical pleasure ever fulfilling enough sends people on a path of self-destruction and emptiness. Even when relationships after relationships prove disappointing, people continue to expect to find their fantasized satisfaction in the next person, the next experience, and the next excitement. 
That's not the love of the cross, is it? That's why it took so much time to read it. What's the wisdom of the cross? Well, the wisdom of the cross is self-stooping, self-laying aside, and removing the gaze of our eyes off of ourselves and onto someone else. Now, I'm not trying to be silly here, but we just have to be truthful to the place that we live in. That means that passion isn't found in a bottle of pills, is it? That passion isn't a man slapping a great deal of money on something for his wife and say, that's good. Passion is not you do what you like, I'll do what I like, and then we'll meet together on Sundays. That is not love, and that is not passion. Isn't passion something like this as a Christian? Look, honey, we're going to go down this narrow road with Jesus Christ together. This road is going to squeeze us so tight that sin will ooze out of us, and we're going to have to deal with it with the abiding power of Christ. And Christ will buttress us up every step of the way. For, honey, that is the real path of life. That is what Jesus said was abundant life. That was the life that Christ spoke of. That is completely opposite of everything that comes down the pike in culture and sometimes in the Christian setting. Okay, so we are told to love our wives that the concentration of our lives, men as husbands, must be on the progress and the advancement of our wives. And that is to be on our eyes continually because that what was on Christ's eyes as he works and worked for the progress and the advancement of the church. Is not Jesus Christ building his kingdom? Isn't that the work of Jesus Christ? So on a human level, husbands, that is the work of ours, that we in some way, and listen carefully, in some way, we come alongside our wives to help her fulfill her destiny and the destiny that she has under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Have you ever thought of that before, men? Because that is our role. Wives in marriage, just as the church in marriage to Christ need each other. Ladies, please listen. You need a husband in the marriage context. But you need a husband that's committed to two things. Number one, your well-being. And number two, the kingdom of God. So if you ask the husband, what's the chief end of your marriage? A good answer would be something like this. I, under the lordship of Jesus Christ, must work for the progress and advancement of my wife, just as Christ worked for and is working for the progress and the advancement of the church to help her fulfill God's intention for creating her. That is our call. Ladies, please listen. What lady in her right mind would say no to that kind of headship and that kind of authority? What Christian woman would say no to that? Our culture has reduced the marriage down to technique in the bedroom, boredom in the living room, right? What are you doing? What do you want to do tonight? Oh, I don't know. What do you want to do tonight? Well, I don't know. I always have to make that decision. And there you go. And then the young couples look and say, what are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to live? And so the young couples have to deal with things like this. And this is what culture tells them. It's either flowers or candy, warped sex, Frequent getaways, good home, good pension, so you can take more free getaways. And there you are. That's the best that we have to offer you. That is life lived in the wrong kingdom. 
And God speaks through his word. And God says this to men, beginning with myself. Husbands, thus saith the Lord, for the sake of Christ, for the sake of gospel, and for the sake of your wife, remove yourself from the dominant part of the equation in your marriage, men. Replace it with the concerns of Christ and the concerns of your wife. That is the biblical model of loving. So just like Jesus Christ had a vested interest in the church, right? When did the powerful love affair begin with Jesus and the church? Before time began. And, and the noble deeds that Jesus had to do to secure and provide for the church, which, uh, which essentially said Jesus lay everything aside and he says absolutely yes because I love the church and I'm going to give myself up for her. So it is with the husbands towards the wife. And again, what, what lady would resist that? Only the contemptuous woman would say no to that kind of leadership. But not a clear-thinking Christian woman. So then in verse 25, beyond uh, that, after we are told husbands to love our wives just as Christ loved the church, he says this, gave himself up for her. Gave ourselves up for her. But ladies and gentlemen, listen. It didn't say give ourselves up to her. There is a marked difference in giving your life up for your wife and giving up your life to your wife. Pero didomai is the Greek word for give yourself up to her, or for her, excuse me, which means hand himself over or give over to. In other words, hum- husbands are to come alongside and pour himself into herself. Why? Why do we do that, men? So that we can get what we want? That's the evil one. Always twisting truth. Uh, Jesus, if you bow to me and do it my way, then I will give you every kingdom and it'll all be yours. I'll take care of you. But Jesus, you take care of me. Before God, this is what a woman needs the most. She needs the most a man who will treat her as a human being, as a woman, made in the image of God, under the providence of God, who hands himself over for her. I don't think any of you ever heard this person's name. If, if you do, I'd be surprised. His name is Benjamin Warfield. He lived the last century, and he was a teacher for 39 years. At the very beginning of his marriage, his wife became an invalid. All the benefits of marriage were completely removed from him at the very early part of their marriage. And yet he stays with her for 39 years, and a friend describes Mr. Warfield, and this is what he says. Mr. Warfield has two interests in his life, his wife and his work. And if you're thinking carefully, both have to do with her well-being. His work as a means of a provision, his love for her as a mean for meeting the requirements that God has given him through his word. And so Paul goes on in verses 26 and 27, and basically he tells us what Jesus Christ did. Now, you don't see it in the English language, but you do see it clearly in, in the Greek. These are not continual events. These are once and final acts. So he makes her holy one time, cleansing her by the washing of the water one time through the word, one time to present her to himself one time. 
So this is what Paul does. And Paul always does this. He always takes us back to the gospel. And if you look at verse 26 and listen to these words, I think it'll make sense. That in the suffering of Jesus Christ, that made people holy, right? Everything outside of us when God separated us by the death and resurrection of Jesus. So it wasn't man-inspired or man-induced endeavor that make us holy. It was God who makes things holy. It was the act of baptism, the, the washing of the water that displayed outwardly that Jesus Christ has done something in us inwardly. And by the way, if you were a Jew or a Greek living in this society, and this is really beautiful, that every wife had the opportunity of what was called a bridal bath. And this bath was taken before she would uh, say the marriage vows. And it symbolically said that everything that happened to the woman before this a marital event, or, or yes, before the marital event was washed away and clean, whether it was her doing or someone else's doing, and she was getting a brand new start without any stain, without any wrinkle, and without any blemish. Do you see why we need the, the gospel? This isn't a romantic commitment only, is it? It's necessity, and it's done outside of us. It's done outside of us. And in spite of us, God does this. And in order for us to be Christians, it was, it was absolutely necessary for someone to bleed, for someone to die, for someone to be resurrected so that we could be counted righteous and all God's wrath removed. And that is our perfection. That is our only perfection. Now, in, the, in, in, in many ways, the gospel is outside of us. Now, I'm taking my time here because I want you to see this, ladies and gentlemen, that in many ways, the beautification of our wife, both spiritually and as a human being, is done outside of her, and it's done by the husband. It is done by the husband. He is the groomer. He is the one that comes alongside of her, and if, if you would... By example, brushes her hair and washes her face and fixes her makeup and does all those nice and kind things to make her glorious. All done outside of her by somebody else. Now, husbands, dwell on this thought that Christ wants the church to look great and he is not involved in anything that would minimize or diminish the beauty of the church. He would never do anything that would remove her worth, remove her dignity or pride. He, his tone and tact in the home, if you would, are always correct for each occasion. And he feeds the church. And he forgives the church. And he cares and he corrects the church. And he lays himself aside for the church. And he pours himself into the church. She is the only attractive one Nothing else is to be desired. Now, isn't this true? Think with me just for a moment. The maxims of the world is this. The older you get, the less you worth. Men and women fighter. What do, what do we fight for? What are the big industry? Billions of dollars are, are spent on smooth skin, tight abs, and glutes so that we can look 30 forever. Old is a curse. Grow old along with me, the best is yet to be, is not the maxim of the world. 
And what does the Bible teach about the church and specifically? Well, this is, this is I think, what happens here. The church's ultimate reality and the necessity and the beauty of the church will happen when what? When her true nature will be seen on the last day. And what happens on the last day? Every guy and gal who, who looked at the church as something that less to be desired, who looked at the church and said, that's for people who have nothing better to do on a weekend. When they see the church as she is, they're going to say three things. First, they're going to go, wow, what a looker. What a babe. And then they're going to go, whoa, why did I dismiss her? And then they're going to say, why? Why did I drive by that place week after week after week after week? Why didn't I let myself be mastered by her love? And see, that's verse 27, that radiance, that liberating, magnificent, glowing, beaming church. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, dare I put it like this, the beauty specialist Christ will have put his final touches to the church. The massaging would have been so perfect that there will be no single wrinkle left. She will look young and in the bloom of youth, with color in her cheeks, with her skin perfect, without any spot and without any wrinkle. She will remain forever like that, forever and ever. And I want to say this to you, and we're almost through here, that the model for the Christian marriage has everything to do with the doctrine of atonement, the theology of the cross, and then the nature of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, if you've heard that before, then I hope you have. Because if you go to a Christian bookstore and you're having trouble with your marriage, the first place that books will be will be under ethics, family, or self-help. Something like this, a healthy meal and a good marriage and why the two matter. Of course, the two matter. But how many of us have ever thought of marriage and the state of the doctrine of atonement, which what Paul gives us here, or the theology of the cross? In other words, men, if you want to be a good husband the know the theology of the cross. Know why Jesus came, know why Jesus, how Jesus saved, and know what he's saving us from. That will make a good, healthy marriage. And I think, and I'm almost convinced of this, that's why so many Christian marriages struggle. And I think that's why they appear as so weak and whittled. Because our marriage is in direct correlation with the gospel how it activates in our, are active in our lives, and how we advance it in our lives. Because if all you do is whittle down to some kind of weekend getaway so that two people can find out how to meet each other's needs in a marriage conference context, that's fine. But that is not it. What is really killing them is that nobody has ever asked the married man and the married woman, what does Jesus Christ want? And since Jesus Christ is Lord, 
He has authority to tell us what matters and what should matter in our marriage. Let me give you a quick example, a Christian church school. Sometimes Christian church schools think this, that if we have a devotion in the morning, boy, we're just going to shoot out straight-A students who are going to conquer the world. No way. There is so much more to education than that. You need good, committed teachers who are smart, who sometimes stay up late to make the thing go right. And it's the same thing here in the context of a marriage. A weekend getaway, a weekend getaway, a weekend getaway. Maybe you have to have a weekend getaway because so many practical things in your marriage got away. Bible studies, church, meaningful church attendance, submission to Jesus Christ in the context of work and marriage and family and life. Maybe that's what happened. Now our time is done and we're gonna be very, very brief. Verses 29 and 30 and following when he tells us, okay, some things come easy by nature. What comes easy? It is easy for us to know how to take care of ourselves. It's very easy. I think Paul says that in verse 29. After all, no one has ever hated his own body. Uh, Men, if our ratio for ourselves is 10 to 10, then our ratio for our wife cannot be 10 to 1, 10 to 3, 10 to 4. Loving her is to be loving ourselves. And we all know that we're very good at that. Someone once said that and asked the question to men, what are you willing to say no to for the sake of your wife and the sake of the gospel? Because the warning in Scripture is clear. that The person who keeps saying yes to themselves is right on the doorstep of hell. Look at Judas. And then verse 30 says, husbands and wives and church, husbands, wife, church, all are one. So the way that you treat the church and the way that you treat your husband and the way that you treat your wife are all one. Do you get that? It matters in your marriage. That's what it says there. A bad look at the church, a bad marriage. A bad look to the husband or wife or vice versa, bad marriage. And then verse 31, moms and dads. Before the children were married, the bond that was closest, the supreme bond was parent to child. But now marriage comes, and that is no longer the case. The bond has been moved down one notch by a new one, a better one for a husband and wife. The husband and wife have been joined together by God, so no one, not even the parents, should get in and try and separate or fix or help. Let them grow up and let them learn how to do it with God's help. And then the final word. The final word is, says, husbands, love your wives, as we were told this morning. And wives, wouldn't it be easy and fitting thing to respect your husband in light of the role, the key role that God has given him to take him and you and the kids, if they're there, to Jesus? And then the very, very, very last thing. Do you hate me and love me yet? 
There are no superhero marriages. There are no supermen and no superwomen and no superhero marriages. And if someone tries to give you that look, be careful and be mindful that the same amount of Jesus is needed every day for every marriage, every time, no matter how good things are and no matter how bad. So men, specifically, if you've heard God's voice this morning, do not harden your heart. Let's pray together. God and Father, we are mindful of how over time the propensity for change for the wrong comes. We've seen it in history, Lord. We see it in the YMCA, how it is not what it is and what it was supposed to be. The Salvation Army was not and and is no longer what it is and was supposed to be. We see it in the church sometimes, Lord, that when people go astray and leave their Bibles there behind, that it is not what it's supposed to be. And then this morning we find that in your word, a Christian marriage is supposed to be something. And there's the potential for many of us here this morning that our marriage is not what it's supposed to be. That yes, we take care of her and yes, he takes care of or she takes care of him, but no, no one has any concerns about Jesus in his gospel, in its advancement in their lives or in the world. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ for husbands specifically, beginning with myself, that you would shorten the gap between proclamation and application in our lives. For Jesus' sake, we pray these things.